Well, good evening. Tonight we begin, as I mentioned previously, a series on the seven woes of Jesus to Matthew 23. Now I want to preface this tonight in case you came all excited. There's actually not any woes tonight. We'll get to those next week. Today is the first 12 verses. And I know some people are going to get up and leave. I shouldn't have, uh, I shouldn't have led that way. Now it's going to be a revolt. They're going to want me to preach a different sermon than the one I prepared. Um, as we jump into to Matthew chapter 23, we're going to look at these first 12 verses and then work systematically through these different woes that Jesus has said to the Pharisees. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but there's, there's, a, there's this thing that happens to each and every one of us and that we, we tend to take on certain personality traits or characteristics or mannerisms of people that we just naturally spend time around. And it's not a conscious thing for most of us. We don't think of, I'm going to start to do this, but we just often catch on to these things. A lot of them, if you're like me, are particular things that are true to your family. Obviously, when you were growing up in your formative years, there were kind of things that just happened and you just became that way. Now, here's the thing as well, is that oftentimes, at least this is the case for me, you don't even realize that you do that until someone else is able to look in at you and help you see that. All right, so you can, you can trend towards a certain way and not even see how you're taking on certain things unless someone else points it out to you. This was a hilarious example to me of how this was true in my own life um, in a way that I took after not only my father, but my grandfather as well, which I do in several ways that, that I'm very happy and proud of. My grandfather as well as my father have both been pastors before, and I, I love being a pastor. And one of the, the things, though, that my wife told me years ago is she goes, you drink coffee just like your dad. And I was like, what does that even mean? Like in a mug, like I swat, like, what are you talking? Like I put creamer in it. And so I was so confused. I was like, what do you mean? I drink coffee. Like she's like, you know what? I'm like, I don't understand. And I was so confused. She's like, your grandpa does. I'm like, what are you talking about? So several years ago, we were out visiting family and I don't, it mustn't have been early in the morning, maybe in the afternoon, um, a fresh pot of coffee was made and, and everyone grabbed their coffee and went and, and sat down. And my grandpa took his coffee and it was nice and hot out of the pot, but he wanted to take a drink right away. And so he goes, and he, take, and he kind of like makes that slurping sound to cool it off right as he puts it into his mouth. My dad sitting on the couch takes a cup and goes, and takes it in. And then I want a cup of my coffee, so I pick it up and I go, and as I'm doing that, I lock eyes with my wife and she has these big eyes like, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't ever consciously remember that decision that led me to slurp my coffee the first couple drinks that I made, but it was just something that I had fallen into and I was totally blind to it, right? But other people could see it clearly in my life. Just as we often tend to drift towards certain patterns or behaviors, and hopefully they're oftentimes funny mannerisms and things like that. But in our spiritual lives, oftentimes we tend to drift and take on mannerisms and characteristics of people and of other things. And I think as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus tonight, all of us have a tendency, something in our hearts that actually causes us to drift to be like the Pharisees were. The Pharisees, all of our hearts tend to drift towards kind of some of the things that describe the Pharisees. 
And here's the thing, we would never say that we've done that because we didn't make that conscious decision to live that way, to act that way, to think that way. But other people can often so clearly see it in us. These verses that we're going to be going through are all the words of Jesus, and he's both describing and then condemning and talking to the Pharisees. So it's important for us to think of who the Pharisees were. Who are the Pharisees? Now, if you have grown up in church or you've been in church for a while and someone were to call you a Pharisee, is that a good thing or a bad thing? A bad thing. Right? If you're, new, if you're new here, now you know. If you want to insult your neighbor next to you, you're, like, you're such a Pharisee, right? And you see how, see how they reply. 2,000 years ago, if you would have walked into a gathering of followers of God and said, you're such a Pharisee, your neighbor would have said, thank you. Thank you. It was actually something that would have been a, a sign of honor and, and something that would have been a compliment towards them. See, a Pharisee wasn't necessarily a profession, we sometimes think that, um, but it, it was actually more a theological view of people who would so f- try and follow Jesus, follow God, that they would set up extra regulations, extra boundaries to want to make extra sure that they followed the Old Testament law. Many of the Pharisees were also scribes and teachers of the law. But when you think of who the Pharisees were, they were the most biblically literate people of the day. They knew their Bibles backwards and forwards. If there were sword drills, do you remember sword drills? Now I'm, now I'm really, like if you went to kids and they were like, look up this passage and you had to be there first, the Pharisees would have pulled out their scrolls and gotten to that passage in the Old Testament fastest. At the, at the, at the programming on who memorized the most verses, it would have been the Pharisees who had memorized the most scripture. They were the most biblically literate people of the day. Not only that, but they were the most passionate followers of God of the day. They weren't dispassionate people who just had this intellectual knowledge and hated caring, but they were very passionate and zealous for their faith. But along with these things came some sins of the Pharisees that Jesus is going to condemn throughout. Sins such as cynicism and hypocrisy, and exclusivity, and legalism, and uniformity. And the reason I think that our hearts can be bent towards these things in our lives, towards these attitudes and actions, is I love what what one pastor, Larry Osborne, wrote when he wrote about the Pharisees. He says, we can so often tense towards this because these things come from blind spots in our lives, not necessarily sin spots. See, these are things that happen in our lives when we can be passionate about God's word. We can know the Bible well, but if we're not careful, blind spots in our lives can lead us towards attitudes of cynicism and legalism and demanding ourselves onto other people. And something that I'm going to ask of you tonight, and that I will ask of you many nights as we study this passage together, is that as we read through these verses and as we think of how they apply today, it's really easy to apply these passages to other people. I've read multiple books over the last few weeks about the Pharisees, and I've caught myself being like, oh yeah, I know someone who thinks like this. I know someone else who should read this chapter right here. They could get something out of this. But I don't want us to be sitting here tonight listening to this passage in Matthew 23, thinking of our spouse or our kids or our neighbor or our boss. I want us thinking of ourselves 
and thinking of where, where may these attitudes or thoughts be flowing up into my life. And tonight we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 23. Jesus' intro statement here to the woes. And tonight we're going to see here as we work through three signs that you may be a Pharisee. Three signs that Jesus initially calls out the Pharisees for, that, that if we see these in our lives, we may actually be someone who's not a genuine follower like Jesus would want us to, but actually being more like a Pharisee. Matthew chapter 23, if you have your Bibles, would you open? The text is also printed there in the handout that you received when you came in tonight. Starting at verse 1, says this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. He says that they sit on Moses' seat. We're not exactly sure what Jesus meant. There's two possibilities. First, at the front of every synagogue would have been a seat that was kind of the seat of authority that the teacher would have sat on. So kind of the, the, the highest person in that place would have sat on that seat. It also could have just meant a symbolic thing that's a, that's a symbol of authority. Either way, it was the sign of someone who had biblical knowledge and authority. And they had this authority given to them. But notice what he says. These statements are dripping with irony. There's this irony. Do what they tell you, but not what they do. What they preach, they don't practice, but they tie up heavy burdens. So they actually are practicing something. They do it. They lay heavy burdens on people's shoulders, but they are not even willing to move them with a finger. See, the Pharisees were concerned with themselves and their own spirituality and their own practice, so much so that they actually oppressed others for their own spiritual growth, that they would look and perform even better. See, the first sign that you might be a Pharisee is if you have an eagerness to perform. An eagerness to perform. That your spirituality is this thing that you put on, that others see that you do. And in fact, it's so important that you perform that you don't care if other people lose. That oftentimes, spirituality for the Pharisees seemed to be more like a competition, it was they needed to win, but in order for them to win, other people had to lose. And so much so that they place heavy burdens on others. See, when we overemphasize in our walk with God, our actions and our responsibilities, it leads to, to our walk with God simply becoming a heavy burden of rules and regulations and things that I have to do because I'm a follower of Jesus. And we're going to see as we walk through this passage, we'll get into more of these rules and regulations. But actually, by, they, they would add boundaries, the Pharisees. So they would add boundaries. They knew what the law said, but then they would add more boundaries to make sure they didn't even get close to that. And these boundaries just became burdensome to others. So much so that, get this, in the Pharisees' spiritual passion, they drove other people away from God. In their own passion and desire to follow God, they actually were driving other people away from 
God, by placing such a burden on other people. See, contrast this, this burden of what it means to follow God with what actually is offered to you and I from Jesus. This is what Jesus has to say about what it means to follow after him. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, it says this, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus brought a light burden in contrast to the heavy burden that the Pharisees brought and were placing on people. Sometimes it may seem like religion is just a burden placed on people. Sometimes it may seem as if Christianity is a burden placed on your life. Maybe you're here tonight because it's a burden that you feel like you have to be here tonight. And it's a burden that you couldn't have missed it. It wasn't an option, which I'm glad you can still come. I would be glad for you to be here. But it can become a burden, even going to church, doing the things that we know we should do, reading the Bible, praying, rather than bringing out joy is actually done from oppression and a burden placed on us of feeling a sense that we have to do this. See, if the Christianity you've experienced feels like a burden, you haven't experienced what Jesus has to offer you. If the Christianity you've experienced just feels like this burden and weight of all of these things that I have to keep doing and I have to try harder and I have to do more, you clearly haven't gotten what Jesus offered because he said his yoke is easy and his burden is light to you. See, why has this happened? Because I know for me, this has happened for me before, where there's times where it just feels hard, like it's a heavy burden to walk with God. And I think so often this happens, especially for for those of us who have grown up in church, grown up as Christians, because it's so easy sometimes to emphasize in our lives behavior modification rather than life transformation. And we see this all the way from children's ministry to youth ministry to when we're adults. See, it's really easy to help people look nice and kind of fit a certain mold. So when everyone walks in the buildings of this door, everyone's like, wow, look at those people at Moody Church. They look like they got their lives together, don't they? Because we come in and we know as soon as we cross these doors, we have to smile because that's what good Christians do. Good Christians are happy. We need to smile and we learn the habits. Do we have problems? Oh no, we don't have any problems. Life is good. And we can play the game and we can say the nice things. We can be kind to the people next to us and then we'll leave here and it'll act like we're entirely different people because we've just changed some behavior, but we haven't actually changed our lives. This is what happens when Christianity just becomes moralism rather than teaching the power of the gospel. When we teach ourselves that what it means to follow Jesus is just to do a list of things or to perform a set of things rather than to trust in God in every area of our lives. This is so difficult because oftentimes it is such a subtle difference between doing something because we feel like we have to versus doing something because we want to show love for someone else. See, there are certain actions and things that should flow if you're a follower of Jesus 
There are certain things that you should do, but it's not because of a burden Jesus has placed upon you, but because your life has been changed and you want to show that love back to God. And it can be the exact same action, but done from your heart that only you can know the difference between the two. You could do the same thing, but your heart is in a totally different place. For instance, when I was young, there was a heavy burden that was placed on my shoulders from very early on. I had to help do the dishes. Was your family oppressive like my family? Oh, it was. We all have grown up under the deep burden placed on us. And there was an expectation that after I finished eating that I would actually help which sometimes not only meant you had to put the dishes in the dishwasher, but you actually had to take them out first and then load them back. Oh, such a burden, right? If, if just talk to it, like if you ask like a 12-year-old to do the dishes, it'll be like, oh, is life even worth living? <laughs> oh, the dishes. Oh, what a burden has been placed on it. They can't wait for the day when they can escape this oppression and realize they have to not only do the dishes, but cook and clean as well, right? <laughs> But the dishes can seem like such a burden on my life that I have to do. Versus just an example from my own life. This, this morning, I came here early this morning. My wife's had a cold since Monday this last week. So she decided to stay home from church. She didn't want to get more sick or share her cough or her sneeze with anyone else, her runny nose. And so I realized this morning that the dishwasher was full and there was a few dishes sitting in there from after dinner last night. And so for me, not thinking of a burden on my life was like, hey, how nice would it be for her when she wakes up this morning that the kitchen's clean? So at 6.30 this morning while I was drinking my coffee, I did the dishes. It wasn't a burden. Why? Because it was just showing love to her. I didn't feel like she had this oppressive weight on me if I had to do something for her. She wouldn't have noticed if I had left him. She wouldn't have thought twice of it. Why? Because it was just my, I was like, oh, this will be nice. This will just help her day get a little bit easier and better. The exact same actions, but done with a different heart, a different motive. Why do you do what you do? Why are you here tonight? Is it because a burden has been placed on you where you have to go to church every single weekend? Or is it because you want to worship God? You want to have fellowship and friendship with the people around you? You want to feel like what it, what it means to grow in our walk with Jesus. So we need to not have this eagerness to perform as if this burden placed upon us, but this inner transformation that only Jesus can bring. He continues in speaking about the Pharisees and the scribes. Verse 5, it says this, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they loved a place of honor at feasts in the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Now he uses some terms here. If you're not, if you're not familiar with Jewish culture, these are big words that go right over your head and have no meaning. So let me help explain it for us. In verse 5, um, he sets up what's going to follow. Clearly, they do everything they've done is just to be seen by others. And he illustrates that. For example, they make their phylacteries broad. All right, now a phylactery is a small leather box that contains text from the Old Testament law. And it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And verse eight says, and you shall bind them as a sign on your head and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And so a picture of this from Wikipedia, which is, means it must be true if it's on Wikipedia, um, is, is it, for example, it looks like this. I've been to Israel, and if you go to the Wailing Wall, right outside where the temple was, you'll see lots of men and women with this, the, the thing on their forehead. That's what it's talking about, containing a Jewish scroll with these texts and some other texts from the Old Testament law in there. Now, it seems to be like we're not exactly sure what it means to make them broad, but it could have been the straps that went around were extra large, kind of like, hey, you couldn't miss it. It was like a supersized one, if you would. It stood out so much so to show off that they were following this closely and practically exactly like how they thought they should. It also says that their fringes are long. Their fringes are long. In Numbers chapter 15, there's a reason that it talks about fringes. In Numbers 15, it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassels of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after, so you shall remember and do all my commands and be holy to your God. So on the edge of their garments, most likely Jesus would have had these tassels on the edge of his, would be tassels that would hang down as a remembrance to follow after God. But this idea would be that some of them would make their tassels extra long, kind of like, hey, I'm extra spiritual, it's extra big, kind of like you see someone who walks in with like a 90-pound Bible and smacks it on the podium. You're like, wow, that person means business. Look at that big Bible. It's massive. It was the same thing. It was a showing off so that other people would see how pious and how righteous they were. They would crave for the best seats at the party, honorable greetings when they're out in the marketplace. They would desire to be called rabbi by others. Perhaps at this time, but maybe just possibly after this, we're not sure. But this idea of a rabbi became overly inflated shortly after the time of Jesus, if not during that time as well. In fact, the rules that they had about addressing a rabbi was that his disciples had to obey him without question. They were never actually to walk beside him or in front of him, only behind him. They couldn't greet him first, but it could only greet him if he greeted them first. It was a sign of such honor and public respect that the rabbis would seek after. See, the second sign that you might be a Pharisee is a desire for publicity. A desire for publicity. They did all these things to be seen by others so that other people would see how great, how much they loved God, their spirituality, how much they had rights. See, again, this is a subtle thing because it's the right action done for the wrong reasons. These very tassels themselves, Jesus had on his robe. He's not condemning them, but he did, they did certain things, the right things, but for the wrong 
reasons, the right actions for the wrong motives. An example of what this looked like, again, back in Jesus' day, is he calls this out in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, Jesus says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. See, we have this dilemma in our lives in that we love to be seen publicly. And the younger you are, the probably greater struggle this is because the younger you are, the more naturally social media and the internet has just been a part of your thinking. And our image, right, the the joke is, if you go to the gym and you don't post about it online, does it even count as a workout? (laughs) Right, if you go on vacation and you don't post daily updates, did you actually go on vacation? Because we like to be seen publicly for these things before others. One of the hilarious ways that this publicity has has been seen in our world is in this new thing, um, which I think has become more popular with, especially in the last five to 10 years. I don't recall it being a thing, certainly when I was in high school. Um, As many of you know, I work still with a lot of our junior high and high school students here. And a thing amongst high school students is called a promposal. A promposal. Have you heard of how extravagant these things are, right? So literally, it's people asking a, a boy, asking a girl typically to prom. But it's not just enough to walk up to your boyfriend or your girlfriend, someone you like, and ask them to prom. You have to make it a publicity stunt for the whole school to see. You need to make a show out of it. And so there's stories of, of a guy writing, would you go to prom? Or just writing prom question mark on 500 ping pong balls, and stuffing them in his girlfriend's locker. I'm like, I don't still get how that says love or anything. Like, you just made a mess that she's going to have to probably clean up. But apparently, she said yes, all right? So there's, there's a boy who took someone else up on an airplane ride. So they could go together on a private airplane ride and look down on the hay bales in his farm that said prom written out in letters. And of course, they had all recorded it and posted it online. People have gotten tattoos. Talk about a bad decision you make when you're teenage years asking someone to prom and, of course, posting all the pictures. There's one video that was seen all over the news about two or three years ago of teenagers doing a dance in front of their high school, in front of hundreds of people all recording it, culminating in him just asking a girl to go to prom. Because it's not just enough to do it. We need to make it public, and we need to make sure everyone knows about it. The temptation in our world is to do the same thing in our spiritual lives. That every time we serve God, every time we read the word, every time we serve someone else, we need to make sure other people, hey, do y'all, do y'all see what I just did? You, you see how I just helped that person out? You, you, everyone saw that, right? Just making sure. Just making sure that everyone saw that. See, it's so easy for us to do the right things and just to think because this is so much a cultural thing that everyone should know what we're doing all the time. And if I have to be honest with you, which I guess I'll be honest with you tonight, if I have to be honest with you, this is a struggle that I always have to push against in my own heart and in my own life, right? Because I I really do. I love being a pastor and I love preaching and I love being up front and opening God's word with you. 
But if I'm not careful, sometimes I love to just be like, man, look at how many people are listening to me right now. Wow, y'all are so quiet and you're paying such good attention. And if I'm not careful, I can be like, this must be because I'm so good and I'm up here. I'm going to tell other people how good I am. I'm going to make sure everyone sees this message here that I'm preaching tonight. And these things can well up in my own hearts that other people need to see what I've done. And it's so easy for all of us to do the right thing, but for the wrong reason, to be seen by others. Jesus continues in verse 9. says, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor. So we've had these different names. The rabbi, which we talked about. The father, which most likely refers, again, to earlier teachers of the law, but who referred to themselves in a special term. Neither call yourself instructors, being like, no, I'm the teacher. I'm the one who gets to decide. I'm the one who can explain as well. But we shouldn't be called an instructor or a teacher as well. Verse 11, the greatest among you shall not be your rabbi, your father, your teacher, but your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, the Pharisees loved the status that their knowledge and their position brought them. They loved the status and the nature of things that they got to do. You see this all throughout. If you're familiar with the New Testament, the Pharisees loved that they got to be close to Jesus. Remember how angry they got when those unqualified people, those sinners and like, don't ha- Jesus, you don't want them around. You need us. This is what we get to do. This is our status that we get to be in these places of privilege with you. See, the third sign that we might be a Pharisee is a swelling of pride in our lives. A swelling of pride in our lives. I think of all of the sins, of all the wrongful attitudes in our hearts and our lives that are so easy to see in others, but so hard to see in ourselves. Pride is right up there, if not number one on the list. Right? We can see pride in other people. We can see how they do, and we can judge them from afar or from a close so accurately. But we so often fail to look in the mirror and to see it in ourselves. See, the, the scary thing for those of us who want to follow Jesus is what happens with pride. Verse 12, whoever exalts himself, whoever is prideful of himself, will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, there's two options. You either do it yourself or God does it to you if you're a follower of Jesus. Those are your two options, right? And so, so if, if, we, if, we, if those are our options, just want us to think like, how, how can we practice humility in a practical way this week? How can we live out if this is so important that if we don't do it themselves, God will humble us? How can we practice humility? Just a few practical suggestions for you. First, help someone else succeed this week. Help someone else succeed. I was listening to a podcast recently and there was a a well-known Christian leader who sold millions and millions of books. 
And the person asked him, hey, what's one thing that you love to do on your calendar that's non-negotiable? And he says, every week I meet with at least one person for an hour with nothing on the agenda but me helping them. Like that's a person at the top. They're at the top of the food chain. They say, I make sure every week that I'm scheduling at least an hour or two a week because easy at the top, everyone else needs to help me. I'm the boss. You should help me look at it. He says, no, I want to at least once, one hour a week. I'm going to help you and you succeed. Serve someone else so that they could succeed at something. A second very practical way to practice humility this week is to simply admit it when you're wrong. Admit when you're wrong. Like you're going to be wrong this week. I hate to break it to you. you might have, it might actually be tonight. So admit it. Apologize and own up. That, it, it takes humility to say, yeah, I was wrong on that. I missed that. That's my fault. But admit our shortcomings. Or the third, a third practice of humility you could do this week. Serve someone and tell no one. Serve someone this week and tell no one. Facebook, Twitter, texting, your kids, your mom, tell no one, just you and God. And see what it does in your heart, that you serve them. And it wasn't for the public recognition. There was no other motivations behind it. But you simply wanted to serve others. See, the the Pharisees were after these titles before their names. And they loved having these titles. I think sometimes we are wired to kind of enjoy having badges and titles placed upon us. You realize that this is true because technology uses, uses badges and titles a lot. Literally, I was standing here worshiping when my Apple Watch, which I, I really like my Apple Watch, I have no problem against technology, right? It buzzed to let me know that I had a perfect, complete week of standing at least 12 hours a day. I guess this was my 12th hour that I've been standing for today. But it did that, and it showed up, and it gave me like a little badge, a little title, right? It's buzzed me before as I'm laying in bed. If you take a brisk 20-minute walk, you could close your calorie circle for the day. Right? I'm like, no, no, that's okay. I'm in bed. I don't, need to, I don't need to get up. But they know that and they offer that and literally take, you could get a new badge. That's a regular thing that they say because they know that, that motivate. Oh, I could get a title. I could get a badge, something on me. See, what titles, they were chasing of rabbi and instructor and father. What titles do we chase today in the church? For some of us, maybe it's this title of the Bible know-it-all. That I know more theology, I know more scripture than anyone else. Now, I am by no means against theology or against studying scripture. I went to seminary. I love reading the Bible and reading theology books. But remember, in Jesus' day, who knew the most theology? Who knew the most Bible? It was the Pharisees did. They did. And they used it against other people. And sometimes we can think, oh, if I have the most knowledge then that actually makes me the better Christian than these poor other people around me. And I'm here now, help them. Other times, it's maybe this, this idea of, of a faithfulness award. I haven't missed a Sunday at church. I haven't missed a Wednesday. These pagans who take vacations with their families and skip a church service, how dare they? I'm never skipping church. We hold our attendance as this title that we have. Maybe for some of us, it's that we're like the theology police for other churches. 
And we love going around and pointing out all the problems with every other church around. Never this church. No, no, no. Every other church. Let me tell you about this bad pastor. Let me tell you about this person. Let me tell you about what I heard about this church over here. What I heard about this place over here. And we love enforcing every other church out there and telling everyone else what they should be doing. There's so many other titles that we could seek after as well. But I just want you to know that the titles that you could seek after fail in comparison to the greatest title you could ever have. And it's this, that you are a child of God. It doesn't matter if anyone calls you rabbi, instructor, teacher, Bible know-it-all, perfect attendance award, Sunday school teacher, deacon, pastor, elder. The greatest title you could ever have is child of God. And get this. You do nothing to earn that greatest title. My last name's best. I didn't do anything to earn my last name. It's a good last name. I like it. (laughs) I did nothing. I didn't choose. It was given to me. It wasn't an earned title. It was something bestowed and given to me. If you're a child of God, that's not because of something you've earned. It's not like you worked hard enough so Jesus decided to love you. It's something given to you by God himself, that he takes the initiative. He will adopt you into his family. And if you want that title, all it takes is faith in Jesus that he died for your sin. He rose again, defeated death, that you could be a part, not of some legalistic religion with all these burdens, but you could be a child of God. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. See, remind yourself if you feel pride sneaking in this week of this fact, that the greatest thing about you isn't anything you've ever done. It's something God did for you, that you can be a child of God. God, we thank you that you have called us and adopted us into your family as your children, as your sons and daughters. What a humbling privilege and honor that is. God, I pray that we would search our own hearts tonight for this desire to perform rather than the easy burden, the lack that you give us, this heavy burden that we may take on to try and perform, that we so often publicly do things for recognition rather than for the right reasons. God, and we confess tonight our pride. It's so so great in our lives. God, help us to humble ourselves regularly tonight, this week, knowing that when we humble ourselves, you will exalt us. We worship you tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.